Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a sermon Will Messenger preached at Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Will is the executive editor of the Theology of Work project and a member of the steering committee. Previously, Will was the director of the Mockler Center for Faith and Ethics in the Workplace at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary from 1999 to 2008 and an adjunct faculty member there. He created and led the seminary's doctoral and master's degree programs in workplace leadership and business ethics. He presently serves as an adjunct faculty member of Laidlaw Carey Graduate School in Auckland, New Zealand, and a guest lecturer at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He was previously an adjunct professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Will is a member of the board of directors of Argyle Incorporated, a biotechnology company near Boston, where he chairs the Compensation, Nominating, and Governance Committee, and is a member of the Audit Committee. He previously worked as a sales representative at IBM, corporate finance associate at Goldman Sachs, consultant at McKinsey and Company, and vice president of sales and marketing at Advanced Metabolic Systems. Will is ordained in the Episcopal Church formerly served as pastor of Charles River Church in Boston and assistant rector of All Saints Episcopal Church in Belmont, Massachusetts. He was awarded a B.S. in Physics from Case Western Reserve University, an M.B.A. from Harvard Business School, a Master of Divinity from Boston University School of Theology, and a Doctor of Ministry from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. He lives near Boston with his wife and their two daughters. Here's Will Messenger. My first job after college was a complete shock. IBM hired me to be a systems engineer, and nothing I studied at college prepared me for that. Looking back, I don't know why IBM hired me. As a systems engineer, my job was to install and maintain the constellation of hardware and software that you need to run a mainframe data processing shop. So you had to know all the disk drives and terminals and printers and mainframes and telecommunications devices. And then you had to install and maintain the operating system and application programs and user interfaces. And I didn't know any of those things. And then there was this lingo that I couldn't understand. So like another systems engineer would say, customer needs new DASD backwards compatible with their 3330s, but there's no more channel space left on the backplane. I felt about as useful as a ham and cheese sandwich at a bar mitzvah. (laughs) Now, in one sense, this was totally normal. Uh, The company knew that any new hire wasn't going to understand all of IBM's systems, so they had a one-year training program for all new SE, all new systems engineers. And as the weeks went by, I was slowly learning what DASD means and what 3330s are and how to configure and install the software. Still, it was humiliating. We'd have team meetings of the systems engineers and I'd be the only one without something to report on. Right after I was hired, IBM instituted a hiring freeze that lasted two years. So for two years, I was always the youngest, least experienced person in the room. And as part of my training, the older SEs were supposed to take me with them to customers. And I remember the first time I came to one of those uh, calls. Jerry, who was the lead systems engineer, said, 
where's the coffee and donuts? What, I said? Adrian, the other SE, said, yeah, well, you're the lowest guy in the totem pole. You're supposed to bring the coffee and donuts. I spent a lot of time standing around doing nothing, so they made me do the ma- uh, menial labor, so like filling in the checklist for the updates uh, or uh, mounting the reel-to-reel tape on the tape drives. And then they'd make me sit at the system console and type in the commands while they dictated them to me. It really bothered me that I couldn't do anything useful. I felt like a little league player on a major league bench. There's nothing I could contribute to the outcome for the team. This bothered me because human beings are made to work, and my work felt useless. Human nature longs to work, to make a real contribution to the world around us. And as long as you can't work or you feel like your work doesn't amount to anything, you feel diminished or edgy or humiliated like I did. This is no accident. The urge to work is built into us because we are made in the image of God and God is a worker. The first thing that happens in the Bible is God gets to work creating the universe. And Jesus said, my father is still working, and I also am working. That's John 5, 17. Jesus is the one human being who fully embodies all of what God made humanity to be. He's what Adam should have been. He's what you and I could be, but aren't yet. And Jesus is also truly God. So no matter which facet of Jesus you look at, fully human, fully divine, of one being with the Father, through, all, through him all things were made. You know, wherever you look, you find Jesus at work. I also am working, he says. So to be f- human is to work, or at least to desire to work. Of course, I don't mean that life boils down to nothing but work. There's play, rest, art, recreation, and all the other activities of life. Yet don't neglect them. Yet all the other activities don't taste as sweet without fulfilling work as part of the picture. If you've ever noticed if you're unhappy in work, it kind of spills over into everything and you feel grumpy. Whereas if you're unhappy in something else, sometimes work can become a a haven or a place where you can still find some kind of fulfillment. That's not always healthy, but it's, it's odd that it works that way. This brings us to the first half of the fill-in in in your program. You have an inner need to work because you are made in the image of God. You have an inner need to work because you are made in the image of God. Now, it would be a terrible cruelty if God made you with an inner need to work, but there was nothing meaningful to do in the world like being a chauffeur in a world of self-driving cars, or being a chef on the Starship Enterprise, because all the food comes out of food replicators. If you've ever imagined heaven as a place where there'd be nothing to do every day but rest and relax, what you're imagining is probably hell. Thank God the world needs your work. The world that God created is incomplete, unfinished, it's potential, and you have something the world needs. The universe cannot be what God made it to be. Not even nature can be what God made it to be without human work, like the reservoir. It's a natural body of water, but 
It didn't become a reservoir until people built the pipes and built the infrastructure to deliver the water. So to return to the second half of the first fill-in, it's a good thing that you also have something the world needs through your work. It's a good thing you also have something that the world needs through your work, so it all works out. You have an inner need to work. The world needs your work. God is good. So what does the world need from you? This brings us to the second fill-in. First of all, the world needs you to provide your share of your household's needs to the degree you are able in each season of your life. In other words, the world as God designed it depends on each of us to work to provide for our own needs. One of the facts of life is you have to earn a living. As Paul put it in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which I think is in the second set of passages on your scripture. I'm not sure about that, but I'll tell you what he said. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. So the first thing God's world needs from you is that you work to support yourself to the degree you're able. When I say support yourself, I don't necessarily mean individually. I'm not sort of preaching some kind of individualism. You may very well belong to what the Bible calls a household. A household is a group of people who share the responsibility of providing for the group's needs, like a family, for instance, or a kibbutz, or a church. Our church is a kind of household where we provide for each other's needs, and you know, that's, that's what Storehouse is all about, right? A way, a way of providing food security for our, for our household of faith. In my household, there are four people. Uh, earlier, when, before I was married, my household was just one person. But no matter what your, the size of your household, every member has the responsibility to pull their weight. In our household, Kim and I earn the money. Kim shops and cooks most of the food, and I fix most of the things that get broken. Our daughters do a lot of the cleaning, and they do the schoolwork that we as a household have decided we want to invest in for their education. This doesn't mean that everyone does an equal amount of work. You know, I know what the reality is about work in American society, and women do a lot more than men. But we all are called to work according to our ability at any point in life and to provide for our household's needs. Everyone has an appropriate share, whether you're young, old, healthy, disabled, retired, working age, whatever. Is that it then? The only thing that you have that the world needs is to provide for your share of, the, of your household's work to the, to the degree you're able? I mean, isn't there supposed to be something more than that? What about some unique thing that only you can do? What, what about making something great of yourself? Start a company, cure cancer, be a missionary to the Shan people of Myanmar, write the great American novel. Didn't God create you with something only you can give the world. Well, let's look at Ruth and Naomi. The book of Ruth is the anchor story for our series this autumn on the whole of life with God in the picture. And we're at chapter two, verses 17 through 23 this week, which is definitely in your program on the left side. It starts this way. Ruth gathered barley in Boaz's field all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back to town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. 
So Ruth and Naomi, her, Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi are a household of two members. Naomi does work inside the house and Ruth works outside as a farm laborer. Both of them show an inner drive to support their household and that's good because there's nobody else to support them. But until they meet Boaz, they've had a big problem. Ruth has nowhere to work. Like most people in the ancient world, her skill is agriculture, and in order to grow crops, you need land. But Ruth and Naomi don't have any land. Ruth is willing to work, longing to work, but she has no place to work. And this puts their household in financial distress with actually the very real possibility of starvation. I know a little bit of what that feels like. Like Naomi, I uprooted myself to follow God's leading. In Naomi's case, God led her to a new geographic location, the country of Moab. In my case, God led me to leave my job in the technology sector to become a kind of pastor theologian. Naomi prospered in the place God led her. Me too. God led me to a great job in a theological institution, and it was a terrific fit for my skills and experiences. I was making an impact in the field, my field, educating pastors and churches, training the next generation of church leaders. Then disaster struck. Both of Naomi's sons died. I got laid off. How could God lead Naomi and Moab, how could God lead Naomi to Moab and then take away her sons? How could God lead me to become a theologian and take away my job? It was devastating. At first, what tore me up inside was the loss of accomplishments. You know, I had started the only program in the, in the world that offered a doctor of ministry in Christian business ethics. I was proud of that. Boom, gone. My students, gone. My research, over. Everything God led me to swept away. So I wanted to get back to all that as fast as I could. I started looking for another job in Christian business ethics. Turns out there aren't many of those. So th soon things got a lot worse than losing my academic standing. After six months, we had trouble paying the mortgage. So I decided I'd start looking for any kind of work. I looked for a job as a financial analyst or maybe a case writer. I would have loved to go back to IBM, but my skills in systems engineering were too far out of date. <laughs> Nobody's looking for people who can mount tape drives on mainframes anymore. So forget calling, I just needed a paycheck. That's when it hit me personally what a blessing it is just to be able to bring home a paycheck to support your family. By this point, I didn't need a fulfilling job, I just needed a job. Or even a job for Kim, and then I could stay home and take, uh, home of the house, take care of the housework so that we could get the income we needed. As it happened, I did find a job in my field of faith and work integration, uh, the, the job I have now, as Steve talked about, but I will never again disdain the value of having a job that just pays the bills. If I got fired from this job and ended up crunching spreadsheets or whatever I could find all day long, even for a company I didn't really feel enthusiastic about, that would be okay if it meant I could earn a living, do my share for my household. It feels great 
to find work that supports yourself and others. Before my layoff, I felt I had to have the right job to fulfill my potential and God's calling. Comparing that to how I felt after my layoff when I was happy just to have a job that paid the bills, the difference is vanity and pride. I thought God made me to do something bigger, better, more significant than the average guy. Now, I realize my work isn't my gift to God. My work is God's gift to me. And I'm thankful simply to help provide for my family. I could end right here. Thank God every time your inner need to work is matched with work that helps support your family. Amen. But there's still some empty fill-in-the-blanks on your program, so I better keep going. What's left to say is that sometimes some people in some seasons of their lives are in a position that they can share, uh, are in a position where, they can sh- where their share of the work can help meet more than their own household's needs. Sometimes you're in a position to do something extra beyond meeting your own household's needs. Sometimes in some seasons of life, each of us needs help from others, and sometimes in some seasons of life, you're in a position to help others. In this week's passage, Ruth, in this week's passage in Ruth, Boaz is in that kind of position. His land has the capacity to produce more than what his household needs. And the Bible gives him guidance on what to do with his excess capacity. The Jewish law, specifically Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and Exodus chapter 23, says that he should let poor people glean his fields. And here's what gleaning means. This is not in your, printed in your program, but it's from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. And from Deuteronomy, when you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. That shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Foreigners, orphans, and widows did not own land in ancient Israel, so they didn't have any fields to work, no opportunity to provide for their household's needs. So everyone who did own land was supposed to let foreigners, orphans, and widows glean their excess grain, olives, and grapes. And in this case, in Ruth chapter 2, it works perfectly. Ruth is a foreigner with no land to work. Naomi is a widow. Boaz has plenty of land, and he knows the gleaning law, and he puts it in practice. He invites Ruth to glean his fields. She does, and her household is fed. This brings me to fill-in number three. See where it says, the world needs you to blank likewise. Fill in, provide for others. The world needs you to, f- to provide for others likewise. Got that? Okay, now, cross it out. Put, it, put a big X across number three. Because what the world needs is not for you to provide for others, but to invest in others' work. And that's the first sentence of number four. The world needs you to invest in others' work. Boaz does not provide for Ruth and Naomi's needs in the sense of taking his excess and giving it to them. That's why I'm crossing out number three. 
Boaz does not deliver the basket of grain to Naomi and Ruth's house. He doesn't send them a loaf of bread every once in a while. Instead, he invests in Ruth's work by offering her a workplace. She does the work of providing for her family's needs. Why does the Bible set up this system of gleaning, providing opportunity for people to work, instead of a system for giving people what they need? When we studied this passage in the Theology of Work Project, we found four ways that providing the opportunity for work is better than giving people stuff. First, it maintains work skills and conditioning and habits. It's like playing a sport. In the off-season, you have to keep working. You have to keep working at it or something similar. Otherwise, when the season comes, you'll be in no shape to pick it up again. Secondly, it promotes self-respect. It maintains dignity. You have an inner drive to work, not an inner drive to be given stuff. When there was a three-year-old in my household, she used to say, I do it myself. Darn right. Number three, it prevents dependency. If you support someone by giving them stuff, they become dependent on you. If you invest in someone's ability to provide for themselves, more options begin to open for them. And number four, it obviates forced labor and exploitation. So other economies in the ancient Near East concentrated land under the ownership of the king and a few nobles. Nobody else could support themselves because they had no access to land. So the common people were forced to become slaves or forced laborers on massive estates. But Israel's law distributed the land to all the families. And even if a household became landless, like Ruth and Naomi, the gleaning laws gave them an opportunity to support themselves rather than having to sell themselves as slaves to the king. Boaz understood that God's purpose in the gleaning laws was not just to get food to hungry people, but to invest in people's work. And that's why he went beyond the minimum requirements of the law. Right? So the law says just, just leave the, the stuff around the edge of your field where the weeds are, or, or leave the grapes that fall on the ground. But he went beyond that to invest in Ruth as a worker, not an object of charity. He included her in his work groups where she could be the most productive. So in the work group, she could come up to speed with the best practices for each crop according to the local conditions. Remember, she'd never farmed in this part of Israel before. He taught her both the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, developing skills in multiple areas. Within the group, she could benefit from teamwork. Right? So there are some tasks that take forever if you try to do them yourself, but you know, they're a snap if a team works on them. And most tellingly, Boaz realized that putting her in the work teams instead of off by herself would protect her from sexual harassment or any, any kind of harassment. You might be harassed on other fields, Naomi observes, but you'll be safe with him. Boaz was investing in Ruth, not just doing a good deed. God's purpose in gleaning is to invest in the work of all of God's people, and Boaz was right with the program. Investing in others' work is much harder than working harder yourself and giving away the excess. I mean, Boaz could have harvested the field much faster on his own than by investing in Ruth's farming capability. 
She's going to be slow at first, make mistakes, drop grain, maybe have friction with the other workers. Boaz is going to have to adapt the systems, the culture, the patterns of work on his farm in order to invest in this foreigner's work. What is Boab going to do the first time someone makes a Moabite joke? What if someone on the team doesn't like Ruth and threatens to quit? It would be a lot easier just to send Naomi and Ruth a basket of grain every once in a while. Is something like this happening to you? Are you spending more hours at work even as you become more productive? Are you making more of the decisions in the organization? Are you spending more time defending your position and extending your power base even as you become more powerful? I wonder if you remember when you used to try to develop relationships with people who could advance your career, but now you're trying to avoid people who can use you to advance their career. It's a lot harder to invest in someone else's work. But at some point, if you believe Boaz's example, you have to tradition for, tra transition from building up your own career to investing in others' work. And it happens a lot sooner than you think. Boaz seems to be a fairly young man, as we'll see in the upcoming chapters of this series. While I was in the midst of this one-year training program at IBM, I got a call from Ellen, a systems engineer one or two years ahead of me. Have you been trained on VSC Release 34, she asked. Yes, I said. Good. Will you please meet me at 8 a.m. on Saturday for a systems update at Ohio Manufacturing? That's not the company's real name. Sure, I said. Then I thought, great, another training session where I'm going to feel useless. So on Saturday morning when I arrive, I can tell that the customer, Ohio Manufacturing's data processing manager, is not Mr. Nice Guy. He's complaining about IBM, we can't do anything right, inferior technology, monopoly power in the industry, blah, 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 blah. He looks at me. Now, I didn't have a beard then, so I looked even more boyish than I look now. He looks at me and he says, and now they're sending kindergartners to do system updates. Want some coffee and donuts, I said. <laughs> yeah, thanks, kid. So I take my place at the system console and Ellen says, okay, let's get started. And then she just looks at me. Jeez, I think this is some kind of test. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. I get out the release 34 update checklist. I mount the product update tape. And I start reading the commands on the, on the checklist and typing them into the system console. Ellen comes over and she looks over my shoulder. And then it dawns on me that this is not a training exercise. Ellen doesn't know how to do a VSC release 34 update. She hasn't been trained on this particular piece of software. On this job, I'm the expert. Once I realize this, I'm terrified. <laughs> but I remember the steps that Jerry and Adrian put me through on those earlier customer calls. The menial labor that they made me do was actually training. They could have kept the checklist, mounted the tapes, typed in the systems commands, you know, faster themselves than by having me do it. But by making me do the scut work, they had been investing in my capabilities. And it worked. I got through the systems update successfully. I even showed Ellen how to do it. 
and the customer was happy. The magic of investing in other people's work is everybody wins. On Monday, I went gushing to my boss about the great training Jerry and Adrian had given me to prepare me for my first systems update. You did a first systems update, she said. (laughs) On Tuesday, my boss got a note from Ellen thanking her for lending her an expert on VSE 34. And on the next customer satisfaction survey, Ohio Manufacturing rated IBM uh, satisfactory on customer service, a way higher rating than systems engineering had ever gotten from them before. So the investment that Jerry and Adrian made in my education, it didn't hurt It didn't hurt their careers by making their expertise less special. Transferring their knowledge to me enhanced their careers and made us all more productive. Boaz saw all of that with Ruth. This makes Boaz one of the great farmer theologians. He recognized that the purpose behind God's laws, God's ethics, God's agricultural procedures Uh, in the Bible is to invest in others' works. He figured out what God was up to in his field. The purpose, the specifics of how to do that are very different in different fields. So what we need today is teacher theologians, retail theologians, bus driver theologians, architect theologians, administrative assistant theologians, people who can see God's purpose in their line of work and discern how to put the Bible into practice. I can't know the details of how to invest in anyone else's work. But if you look at what Boaz did to invest in Ruth's work, you see some general categories. And this is the rest of item four in the note-o-matic. Okay, so one category is providing means. What can you do to provide a means or opportunity for someone else to work? It might be creating a job or a work opportunity like Boaz did. It might be delegating a task, but staying engaged with the other person, like Adrian and Jerry did with me. What can you do to create create opportunities to invest in others' work and grow their skills in your workplace? Wherever you work, home, school, job, whatever. Okay, then there is welcoming and encouraging. It's easy to forget how intimidating it is to be the new person on a job. Boaz kept welcoming Ruth again and again, bless you, welcome you, he commends her. If you look through chapter one, two, and three, he's always welcoming her, reassuring her that she belonged. Now there's always someone ready to make a new person at work feel unwelcome. Maybe what you have that the world's need, that the world needs, is a willingness to make new people feel welcome. Cooperating is hugely important. In last week's reading, Boaz explicitly instructed his workers how to cooperate with Ruth rather than leave her over at the edge of the field because he knew that they, his other workers, needed training in how to work with someone new, to cooperate with someone new. Another category is appreciating someone's work. Boaz complimented Ruth for taking care of Naomi. That was in last week's reading too. And when Ellen complimented me for my work at Ohio Manufacturing, for the first time, I felt like I belonged as an IBM systems engineer. Boaz went to a lot of work protecting Ruth from harassment on the job. In fact, he instituted the world's first recorded anti-sexual harassment policy. So who is vulnerable in your workplace? Perhaps the ultimate in investing in someone else's work is partnering with them, tying your success with theirs. 
And that's not appropriate in every situation. But imagine if your investment in someone else's work were so successful that you were willing to stake your future on their success. Eventually, that's what Boaz and Ruth decide to do with each other, becoming partners of the most intimate kind. That's a future session in this series, but let me just say that the ultimate return on their investment in this partnership was literally infinite. Finally, I don't want to forget buying and paying for the products of someone's work. If giving is a little bit manipulative, you know, creates a little bit of dependency, buying is empowering. The things you choose to spend your money on and the people who produce them are a way you invest in the work of others, for better or for worse. If you want to invest in others' work, these categories from Boaz's example could be a great start. And I hope this is all helpful in some way. But I'm beginning to feel bad about this talk because I'm afraid what I'm saying is like a big pile of shoulds, you know, more stuff to add to your to-do list. Create jobs, welcome new workers, send thank you notes, cooperate with people who need your help, overcome your perfectionism, delegate tasks, but stay engaged, just try harder. Ugh, I hate the gospel of trying harder. Trying harder is the very opposite of the gospel of Jesus, who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if there's anything useful in any of these ideas, you know, great, I, you know, give them a try. But underneath all the ideas and examples is to remember that God is the source of any ability we have to give the world what it needs. And this is number five on the fill-ins. God is the source of your ability to give the world what it needs. Whether it's doing your share to provide your needs, your household's needs, or whether it's giving, investing in the work of others, whatever you have to offer comes from God, not from trying harder. Christ's work on the cross for our sake means that you don't have to earn your salvation, fulfill your destiny, you know, live up to your potential. If you want to do good work yourself and invest in others' work, the most effective step is probably to keep thanking God every day for the work that you have and the people you work with. Just thank God. There are some other suggestions in item number five, but thanking God is the main point. Thanking God for what he is giving you in every moment seems like the entry point for everything that you have to offer the world. And the passage in your program from the Gospel of Mark puts this idea in the metaphor of sowing grain. Mark 4, 3 through 9. Uh, and near the end, I, oh, by the way, I thought this parable would be uh, a great match with Ruth harvesting grain. So this is on the other end, sowing the grain. And near the end it says, other seeds fell on fertile soil and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100-fold as much as had been planted. If God is the sower, then all you have to be is the soil. You don't have to make the seed grow. You don't have to try harder. You just have to be dirt. If you can just receive whatever God throws your way in today's work, or whatever, if you can just, if you can just receive whatever God throws your way in today's work, it's up to God whether you return 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. Or if the hot sun wilts your work today, 
or the weeds and thorns spring up and distract you from your good intentions, don't panic. God will be out again tomorrow, sowing, and every day until he calls you home. You get a new chance every day to yield what God is planting in your work. And I think you can trust God to plant in you whatever harvest he wants for you to share with the world. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I want to give you thanks for the, the drive we have to work and the, and the meaning that you've given work in our, in our world. So I thank you for all those opportunities, whether we get paid or not paid. And I thank you that work is so meaningful, we, we need to do it to support ourselves and our households. And I thank you for those times that we have a little extra and we can invest in the work of others. I actually think that's all the time. And I ask that you give each of us a, a time this week, a, a, a vision, not of how to try harder, but just how to take what you're giving us and invest it in someone else's work. And I especially want to pray for, for anyone who's unemployed or looking for work or stuck in a bad job and needs something different. I, I just pray that you would bring work, the right kind of work to, to everyone in that situation as you did for Ruth through Boaz and you know, as you did for me. And I, in Jesus' name, I rebuke all the broken structures and you know, the evil things that keep people from, from work that's meaningful and productive. And I ask you to, to heal our society and, and us so that we can be about the work you give us to do every day. In Jesus' name, amen. That was Will Messenger preaching at Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject.